Hey guys, today's episode is quite the bummer. I think it's the saddest episode I ever made, and for that reason, I am not doing a zany, comedic, wacky introduction as I usually do. I just want to provide you guys a trigger warning. Today's topic, which we will be discussing, deals with sexual assault, violence against women, racism, enslavement, postpartum depression, loss of a child, and a whole plethora of various different ethical issues in research. I want to thank my guest today, Lindsay Valenti from Ye Old Crime Podcast for providing her research into this case and for sticking around talking with me about a very, very harsh historical event. I think it's very important that we cover this topic in detail, not just to shed light on problems that are present in the cryptid community and in the way folklore is constructed around historical figures, turning them into monsters, but also because I see with this episode that Lindsay and myself are providing a voice to a woman who has not been treated well during her life and has not been treated well at all, even after her death. Her legacy is still desecrated to this day, and I think it's very important that we share this story with you today in order to bring back the humanity to a woman who has been lost to history and also to folklore, who has been desecrated during her life and for over a century even after her death. So without further ado, I present to you the story of Zana of Abkhazia. Okay, today we have Ye Old Crime, and with me today is Lindsay Valenti, the host of Ye Old Crime. Hello, Lindsay. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm pretending that we did not have a very elaborate <laughs> deep discussion now. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm just meeting you for the first time. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were talking about uh, trying to figure out what your show is about. Technically, you are a true crime podcast, and technically, are you still in, in a true crime network? Uh, not true crime specific. The okay. network I'm part of now is the Cultivate Network, and it's a variety of shows. So there's some true crime, some paranormal, some comedy podcasts. So it's kind of a mix. I'm probably one of only a couple true crime shows on that network. Okay, I, I know because I'm basing today's episode on a prior episode from a year ago that you did. You were in another a network, which is mostly true crime related, and I do communicate with some of them. So like, yep. I see your, your show pop up collaborating with a lot of these true crime podcasts. And I'm thinking when I listen to your show and the vibe you give off, are you, are you really a true crime podcast or are you a history podcast? I know. And our show differs a lot from typical true crime podcast just because we have that historic lens to our show. So all of our episodes take place pre-1900. So you're not going to be hearing about Ted Bundy. You're not going to be hearing about John Wayne Gacy. You're going to be hearing about... Jack um, the Ripper and H.H. Holmes? Yep. 
those are the types of people you're going to be hearing about on our show, which we have not tackled either of those yet, but that might be coming in the future. I try to cover cases that are a little bit less well known. Yes. Um, just because there are so many stories out there about, especially women, there's not a lot of female representation in history. I'm sure mm-hmm. we all know why. Uh, so I try to bring those types of stories to light as much as possible, whenever possible. We always try to cover a variety of cases. So it's not necessarily just murder cases. Exactly. That's what I wanted to point out. That's why I asked myself, are you a true crime podcast? Technically, you are. Like yep. a crime can be theft. A crime can be yep. what we're going to go into today uh, for various different reasons. But mm-hmm. it's not always murder. And when you think of true crime podcast, it's always, ah, she was a normal everyday girl, but nobody knew her dirty little secret. Yeah. And blah, blah, blah. Yep. Uh. The, the girl next door until she wasn't. Uh, kind of stuff yeah (laughs) and you can't really do that with uh, the topics that you cover because we don't have those types of stories and even if we do like uh, neighbors said something about the person in question it is rooted in the mentality of a century ago which is totally different than today's sensationalism even though yellow journalism plays a very important part in a lot of these crimes yes i think yes most definitely and that's part of the challenge with researching some of these uh, stories is that you have to combat yellow journalism and, you know, how much they inflated the stories to sensationalize them to sell papers mm-hmm. against what's actually true. So yes. I love newspapers.com, but there are so many articles that I'll find when researching specific cases that I'm like, I can't really use this because I know... <laughs> that a lot of this probably isn't true. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a unique challenge to face as a historical podcast is just kind of knowing, being able to weed through it and be like, okay, what are the actual grains of truth in this story? And I know that you gravitate towards the Victorian era quite a lot. And we know Mm -hmm. during the Victorian era, there was a lot of yellow journalism, a lot of Mm -hmm. penny dreadful stuff like that, uh, that that fueled not not just Jack the Ripper, but like like even before him, you probably know about the monster of London. Yep. Yeah. Springheel Jack. A lot yes, of, yes, yes, yes. Even even centuries before them, there was Whipping Tom. Did you ever hear of that? Yes, yes. <laughs> Whipping Tom. Oh my God, I'd forgotten uh, about him until you just brought him up. <laughs> <laughs> I always I always think of him when I'm thinking about the London monster. But let's say the London monster, some crazy dude who was randomly stabbing women in the butt in 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 London, obviously. Yeah. But then the media made out made him out to be a spring-heeled jack-like figure. Yeah, where he had like talons for claws and that's what he used instead of knives and yeah. Yes. What I want what I'm getting at is that when we think of true crime podcasts, they always talk about hard evidence, about facts, about proof, staying true to the reality of of the crime in question. Mm-hmm. Especially because we're talking about victims who have family members who are still alive and if you are loose with the truth in these podcasts and most often they are (laughs) that's very offensive to the family members but Mm -hmm. what you cover is historical and you can't really be sure of what the evidence is because even back then we did not know what real evidence was and some of the things that we did consider evidence were pretty questionable yeah there wasn't a whole system of investigating crime scenes like we have today way back in like the 17 and the 1800s. So especially when you'd have cases where all the neighbors would come and start trampling through the crime scene and taking trinkets from the person's house and things like that. So it definitely made investigating crimes extremely difficult unless you found the culprit like 
covered in blood and it's very obvious that they're the one that did it. Mm-hmm. See, the trinket thing, uh, that reminds me of today's paranormal tourism and paranormal investigation. And I even uh, interviewed somebody who was talking about just this thing about people taking away objects from haunted locations. Yep. It's it's something ingrained into human behavior and like it's it's not just tied to a murder scene but rather some kind of morbid curiosity. It does not need to be the scene of a murder. It can be a paranormal location, but we have this need to take away a portion of this this (laughs) event that ties us to death in a way yeah it's i think it's just something where people want to not necessarily prove that they took part in something but sort Mm -hmm. of to remind themselves like hey i went to this thing or hey i went to this place it's kind of how after convicts were hanged people would clamor to get portions of the rope so they could say oh yeah i was at the hanging of so-and-so and and here's my proof here's here's part of the rope Hmm. things of that nature well one other thing i wanted to bring up is due to the nature of your podcast covering true crime cases from the from history Uh, where information is very vague. There is this intersection of the subject matter you cover with paranormal topics and with Mm -hmm. folklore. And I was telling you off here that with these true crime cases from old times, what we're talking about is more of a mythology of the crime rather than the actual crime itself. Mm -hmm. So how often do you uh, notice this when uh, when researching topics? It happens a lot more than than most people probably would think is, you know, especially when you have people like... Like Geisha Gottfried and Minnie Dean was another one. And they take on this folk-like persona where people will write nursery rhymes about them or write songs about them. And it Oh, well, in, in America, Lizzie Borden is an obvious example exa- as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Where it takes on this larger-than-life, you know, tall tale-esque type persona. So then at the end of the day, most people don't even know the fine details of whatever the event or person was just because they're going based off of these fabrications that have been made about them. Yes, and also I want to bring up that oftentimes these figures in old-time crimes are through the decades and centuries transformed into monsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how often did you see that in the topics that you covered? Apart from the topic we're going to talk about today. It actually is fairly common. You know, some of these people, the crimes they committed are horrendous, even by today's standards, and especially so back whenever they took place. You know, you'll have people like Swift Runner, who was, yes. you know, a Canadian man who supposedly murdered and ate his entire family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which obviously cannibalism is a, a very taboo topic. And it's something that a lot of people have strong opinions on, my co-host included. You know, in this day and age, we're horrified by that. So I can't even imagine how, how horrible it would be at that point in time, you know, to, to hear about this person who, he was a very tall man by standards back then. Like, he was over six feet tall. So if you see photos of him compared to the police officers that had him in shackles, he was almost two feet taller than them. So in their mind, he's already a monster. Yes, but I want to bring up... (laughs) If we're talking about him, uh, he was also an indigenous man, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Okay, and then the, you're using the folklore of the indigenous man and his culture to mm-hmm. uh, label him as the monster of his own culture, the Wendigo. Yep. So you're adding all these extra layers to it. You're taking it from zero to a hundred real quick, based off of just a couple key pieces that make up who he was, his height and his nationality. I oftentimes bring up the crime of Gador. Are you aware of that one? Uh, refresh my memory. Okay, so this happened in the early 1900s. So maybe that's why. <laughs> 
<laughs> why he didn't cover it in yeah. Spain. In Spain, so this guy was dying of tuberculosis. He employed a medicine man who got a whole posse of people to kidnap a boy, kill the boy, and use the boy's fat to cure this man's tuberculosis. Yes. Now that you are saying that, I know exactly who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And as you may know, in Spain there is this boogeyman called the Sacamantecas, who yes. is a foreigner who steals kids in a bag to steal their fat. So yes. this whole urban legend sparked after the crime of Gador. And there were other people like uh, Roma Santa, who was a serial killer in Spain in the 1800s, uh, who mm-hmm. claimed to have been a werewolf and also stole the fat of his female victims. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there is this, uh, like with old time, t- timey crimes, this tendency to transform the figures into monsters and preserve the crime, the story of the crime as folklore mm-hmm. uh, compared to the true crime world of today, where we have all all this evidence and documentation. Exactly. And that brings us to today's <laughs> very harsh topic. Listeners, if you thought what we just talked about is fucked up, <laughs> get, get ready some, for some more fuck upperies. Now, I know, uh, as we said, like uh, murder is not the only crime that somebody can do. And I, w- when I heard your episode that was about the Zana controversy, mm-hmm. I thought like first thought is, wow, this is on a true crime podcast. And Mm -hmm. technically it is a crime, but nobody would perceive it as such. And uh, second of all, like there are a few podcasts that covered this topic and it's always cringy. You can't listen to it. I now listen to a conspiracy podcast and they they were just saying a lot of questionable stuff. Mm -hmm. But you actually did the episode very, very well. And that gave me the the idea. Wow, this podcast is legit. This podcast does actually good research. (laughs) No problem. Yeah. So I actually contacted you like a year ago when you did this but you maybe don't know it was me. I was doing another podcast back then with another name. I contacted you to congratulate you on the episode because I was thinking of doing the same topic. And after you, I thought I have nothing else to add on to this. Like (laughs) this was done perfectly. Thank you so much. Yeah. So uh, I thought uh, I want to talk about this topic, but I thought who else to have on than you because you already did it justice and we can maybe now expand on on this whole topic because it is a much more deeper problem than people want to give it credit. Exactly. Yeah. So can can you uh, (laughs) tell us the overview of what we're going to talk about today? Sure. So Zana was essentially a very large woman that was captured in the 1870s in what is now the Republic of Abkhazia. Is that how you say that? Yeah, Abkhazia. And I did want to point out, so I like that you're saying Republic of Abkhazia. It is a kind of autonomous territory in what is now Georgia, the European mm-hmm. Georgia, not the American one. Yes. <laughs> Big distinction. Oftentimes, podcasters talking about this topic will say, oh, this is in Russia. And I did see on the internet on a few forums, people say, like who are from Georgia like no this is from Georgia like even though mm-hmm. Georgia was part of the Soviet Union once it is still an independent country now so yes yeah we need to acknowledge this is Georgia not Russia and I did note that the region in Georgia that it is but now it's kind of mm-hmm. that section is a little bit separate so I wanted to make sure that I noted both of those when I was doing oh yeah the, the I, I think the the European Union not European Union the <laughs> <laughs> the United Nations do not recognize the Republic of Abkhazia as an autonomous country in itself, but Georgia recognizes it as such. So we'll go. go off of that. 
Sure. So so basically in this this area, this over six foot tall woman was discovered and she was extremely well built, had super thick arms, legs, and she was covered in coarse red hair with black skin. And everyone's first reaction to her was, oh my God, she's a monster. And mm-hmm. so they had to, this group of hunters that came upon her, subdued her and captured her and gave her the name of Zana. Uh, so they did what so many people would do when they come across something they don't understand. They lock it up and basically sort of dehumanize it. And she was essentially kept in captivity for an extremely long time in Mm -hmm. a ditch that they surrounded with sharpened spikes to ensure that she would not escape. And I think this is when they were bringing people there who would be potential buyers of her. They were were trying to sell her. Like when you look at the sources, every every website that covers this story has a different version of the story. That's Mm -hmm. why I told you off air, like we can't really know what the reality of the story is because it's now folklore. Everybody has their own version. But from what I found, multiple uh, wealthy noblemen were brought there to, to witness her, to try and buy her. But she ended up being bought by this guy with a weird name, Edgi Ginaba. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he purchased her and he kept her in like a crude cage outside for the first three years when she lived on his estate. She went around naked. It said in there that they offered her clothes and that she refused to wear them. It's hard to know if that's true or not. Oh, yeah, there are stories that she ripped the clothes to shreds. Yeah. Which I'm thinking yeah. back in those times, like clothes were very expensive. So you're, you're not going to be multiple times giving clothes to someone Somebody who's already ripping them to shreds. But okay. Well, and when they say clothes, who knows what they made those clothes out of? Because obviously, mm-hmm. if if she if they view her as this savage creature, they're not going to want to use the nicest fabrics they have to make a an article of clothing for her. I don't know if you found this, but when they unearthed her remains in the seventies, uh, they found a rubber kind of slipper or shoe on one leg. Oh. Mm, so that even go, goes against, or maybe they just put it on after her death. I don't know. But then back in those times why would you bury somebody with clothes if they're expensive <laughs> that's true but that probably that makes sense because after a time she sort of became a servant of edgy and she mm-hmm. would take and she would you know take his boots off for him and things like that so i'm sure once she became part of the household that's when they would force her to start wearing clothes because you can't have a woman walking around naked inside of the household mm-hmm. doing chores so it yes. would make sense that she would have been buried in clothes because she would have at that point have been forced yes. to wear them and and that's the problem we see oftentimes with history when we're talking about history we don't talk about it like with the knowledge that this is something that happened throughout many many years we're talking about it as if it all happened at the same time so maybe at some point she was not wearing clothes Mm -hmm. but then that stuck as a part of the story maybe Mm -hmm. she spent like the 30 last years of her life in clothes who knows but Mm -hmm. this is the part of the story that stuck and is repeated over and over again yeah and again that adds to the lore of she was this savage woman because she refused to wear clothes clothes and was Mm -hmm. just covered in hair you know so for all we know she did have some sort of clothing on when they first discovered her but again all that information has been lost to time and wasn't well documented i think uh, people who have documented this have been very biased in trying to portray this case as a possible wild woman or bigfoot so they Mm -hmm. are cherry picking details you know they cherry pick only the details which go in favor of this being a wild woman Mm -hmm. yep to dehumanize her yeah and in in this case it's not transformed the killer into a monster but rather the victim mm-hmm. and listeners if you don't realize by now why this person is a victim i mean it's very obvious why but there's more stuff coming yeah. on 
So as if her being a bit of a spectacle wasn't enough, the locals near the estate where she was living decided it would be a good idea to introduce Zana to alcohol, which was not great for her as she became addicted to alcohol. And during bouts of her being impaired as a result of imbibing, uh, local men would take advantage of her and assault her. And as a result, she gave birth to at least four children that we're aware Mm -hmm. of, two daughters and two sons. Yes. Now, per per the folklore, we are aware of four children who are living, but she actually, if we are to believe the stories, gave birth more times, but the babies died. And there is this story that keeps being repeated that after she gave birth to her first child and like she gave birth without any kind of assistance. So she was taking care of this all by herself. She took the baby to a nearby river and put the baby in the water. What people are saying in these articles as an instinctual attempt to clean the baby. And because the baby is supposedly a half breed between a Bigfoot and a human, it -hmm. cannot withstand the coldness of the water. So the baby died of hypothermia but Mm -hmm. so this is very problematic like they use this story of her unintentionally killing the baby as a way of saying oh this is something instinctual of uh, another species of human or whatnot but Mm -hmm. this woman may have been mentally disabled yep she may have been going through postpartum depression Mm -hmm. she may have not even known that she was pregnant or what this even means and a baby popped out of her and what the heck is happening? What is this living thing? And you can think of many different things that can go into somebody's mind, especially somebody who is held captive, who has probably mental disabilities and who is dehumanized. Well, and someone who was assaulted. Yes. So that's another thing to factor into it. That sort of trauma is something else to factor into it too. So that's not me saying I think she purposefully took this baby to the river in an attempt to drown it or anything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, who knows what sort of mental state she would have been in having yes. after having giving birth to a child oh yes but but uh, like what what we see in articles is always this story of oh this is an instinct to clean the baby but because the baby is a half breed it could not yeah. survive the coldness yeah how can we assume all yeah. this stuff it, it's just cherry picking details to fit a certain narrative now why we know of four children who remained alive is because allegedly the women of the village decided to take away her further children from her and raise them Yeah, we know of at least two children that they supposedly adopted, one of which was a son. And the villagers who adopted them said that, you know, they were healthy and extremely strong. So a lot of them exhibited a lot of the symptoms or not symptoms, the um, characteristics, characteristics, thank you, of Zana as far as her strength. I think her son was also extremely tall. I think he had slightly darker skin, but it wasn't, he wasn't covered in hair. He took more of his father's appearance. I think the other one was a daughter, but I couldn't find that mm-hmm. much of, about her, which again is not surprising given that. Now, if we are allegedly talking about the son who was, who was named Quit. Mm-hmm. who died in 1954. Allegedly, he was also the son of Edgi, the nobleman who, who was keeping Zana captive. Mm. Mm. And he was actually buried in the Ganaba family's cemetery. 
along yeah. with Sana. Yeah, because she passed away in 1890. And mm-hmm. at that point, she had been in captivity for 20 years. Which, yes. And of her descendants, a lot of them still live near... Did I even say that right in my episode? Oshamshir? Uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's how I say it. I know I am Slavic, but I, I don't know the, those words. <laughs> Russian is sometimes difficult for me. Yeah. I'm just going to say Oshamshir. And even her grandchildren were noted as having, you know, darker skin and were exceptionally mm-hmm. strong. But none of them had that distinctive body hair that she was known for. Do we want to go into the lovely Professor Sykes at this point? Let, let's not go into Sykes. I want to talk about uh, the folklore more. Sure. Uh, and problematic undertones of some of these details in the stories. So there are stories that Zana was very aggressive and violent. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there are stories that Quit, her son, was also very aggressive and violent and that he lost his hand <laughs> in, in an altercation with villagers or something like that. <laughs> Yeah. So there are also stories that she likes to climb up on trees and eat grapes. And yes. then they say, oh, Quit also liked to climb up on trees. I can't help but feel that this is v- very racist. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's ex- extremely racist. Yes. There were also stories that she was able to run extremely fast, that she could yeah. run as fast as a horse. Yes. She was strong enough to swim against the currents of the river and that she enjoyed hanging out with buffalo, just chilling out with buffalo. In, in watering holes, yes. In watering holes. <laughs> Now, I find this ridiculous. So obviously this is folklore. Like mm-hmm. this strong wild woman can run as fast as a horse. She can she can outswim a river and stuff like that. Okay, let's talk about Paul Bunyan and all his you know grandiose mm-hmm. feats, and then say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, Paul Bunyan was not a human being because he could master all these feats, and that's ex- exactly what they're doing with Zana. They're saying, oh, if she could un- outrun a horse, then surely she is not human. She is something else. Mm-hmm. First exactly. of all, we we don't know if this is true. It is a confabulated folklore from centuries ago mm-hmm. and you're, you're just using folklore to further prove your own racist ideas of trying to push this poor woman into the basket of being subhuman exactly exactly well and on the opposite token you know the when she started working inside the house all the women that worked there were terrified of her but it was noted that she was extremely caring and patient with children that she mm-hmm. would come across so in that respect you get a little bit of like the gentle giant type of context of yes an archetype yeah and that could be part of her maternal instincts that took place after having children it's hard to say but i think you have to to me that humanizes her and gets rid of the whole like monster aspect of her because monsters typically don't care so much for children and the fact that she was extremely gentle with children if the stories are to be believed yes i feel feel kind of goes with that i want to read something now from the cryptid wiki of all things Sure. And the reason I want to do this is because we cryptid podcasters use the cryptid wiki as a valuable source of information for our episodes. But like what I'm going to read now, probably this will Lindsay piss you off and it will piss <laughs> off the listeners. Just how this this was written and in what kind of context. Sure. So there's this whole chapter of children and it says, and this is like a whole chapter from the wiki. Strangest of all is that she bore many hybrid children. You're insinuating that these children are not human. Mm-hmm. And then the next sentence, that's right. Several men in the village were actually having intercourse with the Almas. For those who do not know, Almas is the Russian version of Bigfoot. The next yeah. sentence, which shows you that men really will screw anything as long as no one knows. Oh, people knew. And, and th- th- this is in a wiki <laughs> that people God. use as verified source of information. 
It says uh, she would always wash the newborn child in the cold water spring. The half-breed infants could not take the cold water and several of them died. So after a few times, the local women would take the newborns away from Zana and reared them themselves. Four times this happened and the children, two males and two females, grew up as humans. As if they were not humans. <laughs> and when we go to the genetic God. studies, they were humans. God, they're, they're human. It's, oh, okay, yeah, that makes me really mad. Listen to this. These children grew up to be normal speaking men and women. Now they were not the brightest bunch or the best looking, but all, <laughs> but overall very simple. Oh, that's great. Fuck this shit. <laughs> God, that's great. And, and this is the type of stuff we see online whenever somebody writes about Zana. Now, I am baffled that other shittier sources, you know, some personal blogs and whatever, do a much better job than, than the main wiki for cryptids that everybody uses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah. Sorry. So, <laughs> no, no, it's bullshit. <laughs> it's, it's fucked up. It's, th- it's, this... it's super fucked up. Yes, this imperialistic need of one huge reason why I hate Bigfoot, and I'm a cryptid podcaster, but I hate Bigfoot, is because it's a personification of cultural appropriation, but also this need of white imperial bastards to demonize everything that is subhuman and often put native people in in the basket of, oh, are they Neanderthals? Are they a subspecies of Homo sapiens or whatnot? Yeah, because we all know white people are like the only true humans, right? Hmm. God. Yeah, fuck that. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to say, let's go to more brighter topics, but nothing here is bright at all, because even if we go into Dr. Sykes, uh, it's still problematic. So can you tell us something about Brian Sykes? Well, I mean, to go back to your point about her um, mental facilities, Mm -hmm. I'll just say that there were some theories that came out that she had a couple genetic um, issues genetic mutations. So one of them would be, was theorized to be the congenital generalized hypertrichosis, which is mm-hmm. when you have a bunch of increased body hair on your face and back and limbs. If you think of, yeah, if you visualize like the quote unquote wolfmen of India, that gives you an idea of hypertrichosis. And we haven't really addressed it yet, but Zana didn't speak. And we don't know if it's a matter of she couldn't speak, if she was speaking a language that was foreign to her captors, or if she had some form of mutism. But it's theorized that her dysmorphic facial features and perhaps an intellectual disability is what led to her being unable to speak. Yes. And I want to point something out. So before we go into the genetic studies, when we look at Bigfoot cases throughout the centuries, witnesses who actually saw a Bigfoot-like creature, back in the old days, Bigfoot was more human-like and was carrying tools and clothes and whatnot. The Mm -hmm. more time progresses, the more Bigfoot in these witness statements becomes more animalistic and more covered in hair. So even if Zana had hypertrichosis, maybe she was not really covered in hair all over her body. Maybe she was just a bit more hairy than usual. Mm-hmm. But uh, as we are confabulating the myth throughout centuries, the more we talk about this myth, the more hairier and hairier she becomes because hair is often used in these circles as a symbol of something being animalistic or primal. Mm-hmm. And as I was researching her her ca- her case and like discussing it on the podcast, to me, I didn't view her in the sense of someone who 
looked like cousin it you know what i mean like i viewed her more as someone who maybe had as much hair as someone like robin williams who was a very hairy man Mm -hmm. and maybe she just had excessively long body hair and that's just what it was it wasn't a matter of she was a wolf woman or a you know it was just a matter of genetically she just had longer thicker hair again that made her a beast and not a human we should point out that Zana was a black woman. Yes. And she was a black woman in the Caucasus region near Russia, where that is not an usual thing that people saw back in the 1800s. So the black skin, along with maybe a bit more hair, would have sparked maybe this myth, oh, this was a hairy creature. Mm-hmm. But also, I read in some blogs, this is a very va- valid, uh, valuable information, that back then, there were many black people who ended up in this region due to shipwrecks because there was a slave trade back then of the Ottoman Empire. And even the Ottomans back then brought African slaves to these regions. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that she would have been, in that respect, an entire anomaly, but she certainly wasn't. Seeing someone of her color would not have been common, especially in like remote villages where she was. Uh, Are you aware? There is this story. Ah, man, I'd love to know (laughs) the details now. So there is this Japanese story. I don't know if it's from the 17 or 18 hundreds of a few Japanese soldiers uh, finding a woman floating in some kind of uh, wooden wooden disc on the water. And uh, UFO people now want to say, oh, this is a crashed UFO with a female alien inside. But rather, (laughs) what actually happened, uh, the way they they described her, she could not talk, blah, blah, blah. She had red hair. She was probably a Russian woman that was sent adrift. And yeah. ended, ended up in Japan. And over the, there, this sparked this whole myth of a woman fr- from outer space that ended up in Japan. Yeah, it's like, who knows? She And again, it could have been something where she was maybe shipwrecked again, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. We oftentimes forget, like when talking about these historical events, shipwrecks were a thing and yeah. people surviving shipwrecks were actually a thing. And then how, how did these people live now displaced in a totally different part of the world? And how, how does the local population react to that? How is this person then ingrained into the folklore of, of the land? No, totally. Yeah. So <laughs> Professor Sykes. Yes. Gr- great, great guy. So yeah. he was a professor of human genetics at the University of Oxford, and he firmly believed that Zana was a Yeti, and he set out to back up those claims. And in 2013, he conducted DNA tests of six of her living descendants utilizing their saliva. He dug up her son Quit's grave in ni- or he used he tested he, used a, skull. He, tested, uh, I- he tested a tooth. Yes, yes. I think the grave was dug up in 1971, but his paper was published in 2013. Yes. So he used a tooth from her deceased son, Quit, whose grave they were able to find on the estate. And he concluded that they all contained enough African DNA to state that she was from sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And he even stated 100% sub-Saharan Africa. And you'd think, okay, this guy who is a university professor, despite, you know, trying to prove Bigfoot real, found Mm -hmm. the genetic uh, proof of, okay, this is a human person from Africa. But then... (laughs) (laughs) But then 
She had no physical or genetic resemblance to anyone living in that section of modern day Africa. So he was like, oh, well, she had a strain of West African DNA that was a subspecies of Mm -hmm. modern humans. And again, as you mentioned with the Ottoman Empire, it's theorized that Zana was a slave that was brought over by the Ottomans from Africa, which would explain her her being in that remote area of the world. And so a man named Dr. Grover Krantz also examined her son Quit's skull in the 1990s. And he made a point of stating that it had no Neanderthal features. And he was able to collaborate or corroborate that, yes, he was a descendant of Zana genetically. But the thing is, Brian Sykes, being a guy who wants to find proof for Bigfoot, is not satisfied with the idea that this woman is a slave woman from sub-Saharan Africa who was brought in the 1800s via the Ottoman Empire somehow to this region of the world because like her DNA does not comply with the 100% DNA of various different people in Western Africa. Exactly. So, so he theorized that maybe she is a part of an evolutionary offshoot from Western Africa that colonized the Caucasus region 100,000 years ago. Again, trying to say, oh, this is another subhuman species that evolved into a, a wild figure. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's hilarious how he'd be like oh yeah she's she's part of this unknown tribe of <laughs> humans from west africa you know from over a hundred thousand years ago no no biggie and she's you know the only one so. yeah fine. And I I find it funny. So we're going to go now into the 2021 study. I find it funny how with these Bigfoot researchers of modern times who are utilizing and appropriating science to try and prove their bullshit, how in the end we need to use proper science to disprove the scientific bullshit of the Bigfoot people. Mm -hmm. Because the whole reason the 2021 study we're going to go into was done was to disprove what Brian Sykes postulated, this whole theory of a tribe that is an offshoot of Western Africa. Mm -hmm. I I can go into it because I have it on my screen. Okay. Sure, go ahead. Okay. So this was published in the 14th of June, 2021 in Advanced Genetics Volume 2, Issue 2. This is a real scientific research paper, and it is titled The Genomic Origin of Zana of Abkhazia. Oh man, do I have to re- read all these names? It- <laughs> <laughs> so the people who wrote this paper are Ashut Margarian, Mikhail Holger S. Sinding, Christian Karo, Vladimir Yamshikov, Igor Bursev, and M. Thomas P. Gilbert. And even though I didn't understand a lot of what was in this paper, it was mm-hmm. very well written. Like they yes. had a lot of charts and everything and it was good. Okay, so I'm going to read this part from the introduction because I find this very very funny. They explicitly stated to overcome limitations of a previous DNA analysis. <laughs> And the possible ambiguities of craniometric studies, that means the studies of this guy in the 90s of the skull, mm-hmm. we sequence the genomes of both the unknown female and quit, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't understand this other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we performed genome-wide analysis to explore their genetic ancestry and kinship relations, which allowed us to shed light on Zana's story based on objective genome-wide data. I love when scientists poke at other scientists. Mm-hmm. but in a way that a layman uh, reading this scientific paper would not understand to overcome limitations of a previous DNA analysis and possible ambiguities of craniometric studies and uh, stating based on objective genome-wide data. You know, they, mm-hmm. they use very subtle tactics to, to yep. 
poke at each other. Very subtle digs. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, this is a whole study, a whole genome study. I'm not going to go into it because even though I am a biology major, <laughs> I don't understand a lot of this stuff. <laughs> but essentially, I'm going to go to the, the results uh, once I find them. Okay, conclusions. And they state, our results prove that the unknown female buried in the Genaba family cemetery was Zana herself, in contrast to the speculations that she might have been a female Almasti. We provide definitive genome-wide data to put an end to the accounts of her as anything but a human woman, mm -hmm. which I think is written very, very nicely and powerfully. Mm -hmm. Zana was likely of Eastern African descent, although we cannot rule out partial Western African ancestry. We hypothesize that her lineage could have arrived in the territory of present-day Abkhazia, South Caucasus, as a result of the slave trade practice between the 16th to 19th centuries CE by the Ottoman Empire. Lastly, we speculate that it was simply her unfamiliar individual physical characteristics, such as unusual behavior, physical strength, tall stature, lack of recognizable speech, and hypertrichosis, you know, the, the disease that causes a lot of hair, and the subsequent rumors over generations that fuel the myth of a non-human origin. Now, what I see from this and from the whole study, they actually did prove that what is thought to be her son and the female remains that they found buried near her son were related that mm -hmm. the female were, remains were from the mother of the supposed son. So they confirmed, yes, the remains are from Zana herself. Mm -hmm. They also found that she is likely of Eastern African descent, but they cannot rule out partial Western African ancestry. This is where uh, Sykes uh, failed. So he thought her genetic makeup does not uh, conform with the genetic makeup of all of these different peoples in Western Africa. But the thing is, she had mixed ancestry herself from mm -hmm. different parts of Africa. Yeah. So she's not some kind of evolutionary offshoot. She is also a mixed race person, per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I recall, I'm like looking at my notes, that they were able to show that Zana is not genetically linked to either archaic humans or the chimpanzee, just to make sure we rule that out. But you're right, that she was that she belonged to a group of like European or Caucasian and African populations. So she was of mixed race. Yes, yes. And <laughs> they added a chapter 4.1 after the conclusions called a note on ethics <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> yeah and th this uh, makes the whole point of why this, this study needed to be done. Following her capture in the forest, Zana was deprived of her basic human rights and treated as a slave. She was kept in captivity, likely forced to have sexual relations with local men, and worked in forced labor conditions. After she passed away, the, the accounts on her mythical figure attracted several scientists to unearth her story and her son's bones were exhumed. Our study intends, both to reveal the true human nature of Zana and grant her and her descendants' remains the dignity they deserve. Mm -hmm. I find it very fucked up that a scientific journal needed to write this because this is not something that we often see in scientific studies. You know, mm -hmm. this is more of this is more opinionated, but it's not really opinionated because yeah, it's something you'd you'd see more in like a journalistic yes, approach. But because uh, scientists were already desecrating her legacy, her mm -hmm. remains, and the remains of her own child. These scientists then thought uh, they needed to add this just blurb, a note on ethics, to lay this story to rest already. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I find it like we're talking about folklore, like we don't know what happened. We don't have in the study how she climbed trees or was <laughs> as fast as yeah. a horse or whatever. But what is written is something that they probably could verify as actually happening. And what mm-hmm. actually happened is what they say, deprived of her basic human rights and treated as a slave. Yep. And uh, just to kind of prove how uh, how unethical and kind of crazy Professor Sykes is, I found this in my notes. He tried to claim that Zana was a true Yeti based off hair sample tests that he had previously done for an unknown and undocumented bear species in Bhutan that was the result of Yeti sightings in the area. And so he was stating, well, because these hair samples are evidence of anomalous primates or Bigfoot. Or anomalous bears. <laughs> Or anomalous bears or the Russian Alma Almasti that, of course, she must be one of these because, you know, he tests these hair samples. And of course, she has to be this. This is something I oftentimes uh, stumble upon when doing these types of episodes, uh, academics and university professors who are very questionable in the way that they do their science or their research. Yeah. Uh, he also published a few years after doing his own DNA study of Zana's remains and finding that she was a woman, a human woman. He released a book titled Nature of the Beast, I think. And in it, he, <sighs> he, he describes. And that, that's the thing. You can't, you can't uh, sell your bullshit theory in the scientific peer-reviewed journals. Like in the peer-reviewed journal, he needs to say, okay, I found that she is 100% sub-Saharan African descent. Mm-hmm. But if you have your own theory, pet theory, bullshit theory, that's not very scientific and that would be dismissed by peer review. Exactly. You can, outside of your work in your free time, write a book about it. Yeah. Having your own bullshit theory being like, she's a Bigfoot. She's a missing link is not something you can include in a scientific paper because that's, yeah. Because it needs to be peer reviewed. Exactly. But but that, that, that that's the thing, like... In today's times, like academics, uh, this is treated as work. Like for work, you do what you need to do for work. But in your free time, you can spew whatever nonsense and bullshit you want and write books about conspiracy nonsense. And nobody yeah. will will say anything against that. We no longer have a responsibility as an academic to be a beacon of uh, knowledge and of ethics, even in our private lives outside of work. So I don't like how, how <laughs> today's science is, is treated as a job. You know, you do your nine to five, you go home and you write your racist uh, conspiracy (laughs) nonsense and make money off it. Yep. Now, I wanted to ask you, uh, do you believe in Bigfoot? No. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The reason I ask is because the episode that you did on Zana was a birthday gift to your husband and he is more of a Bigfoot fan. Yeah, he he really likes um, Yetis in particular and Bigfoot. And it's not a matter of he thinks they exist. He just thinks the the look and the lore behind them is interesting. Mm -hmm. And so it's more of the, the story behind them that he finds fascinating. Not that he's like, oh, yeah, they're real. They're out there. (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to ask what was his reaction after uh, you did your episode on Zana <laughs> and after you exposed him to all of this. He was like, wow, that was super sad. And I feel really <laughs> bad. <laughs> well, if, if he digs a bit more into the history of Yeti research, he, he will be more sad because it is very racist. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's super racist. But I think, as he kind of said in the episode, he was impressed that I was able to find anything really about her, let alone to be able to kind of prove, yeah, she was a human person. Like she was as human as you or I. She yes. just had she just had some genetic anomalies. And that's, you know, that was all people back then needed to be like, well, she's a beast. She's totally separate from us. She's something different. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you also how this uh, doing this episode affected you, because like, like all podcasters, we need to pump out weekly content but mm-hmm. from, from the vibe i get from your show is that you actually invest yourself into the research and you want to especially because you're you're covering these cases that nobody ever talks about mm-hmm. you want to maybe use the opportunity to convey messages that are important that should be talked about so you invest a lot of your energy and emotions and time and research into every episode you do now mm-hmm. does the zana episode maybe have a special place in your heart or is this how you approach every episode that you do um i try to approach each episode that way sometimes I don't connect as much with the subject matter as I would in the case of the Zana episode mm-hmm. in the case of this topic it made me very sad as a a woman because of all the stories that we've read about how enslaved women were treated not just enslaved people in general but women in particular and just trying to trying to picture how scared she probably was how confused she pro- probably was as to why she was being kept in chains in a cage and especially if she did have decreased mental facilities yes just having no understanding of why people were treating her the way that they were and if she was unable to speak just the fact that she wasn't even given the opportunity to advocate for herself and in the instance of you know the assaults she suffered at the hands of the villagers not being able to say no also i think due to her being intoxicated during the assaults allegedly she mm-hmm. was not even aware that this went on so mm-hmm. like uh, how do you then react being pregnant after that not knowing mm-hmm. that this happened and then a baby pops out of you what do you do with that like it's a more complex and nuanced situation many people don't understand women would understand mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. mothers like a lot of women go through postpartum depression go through these kinds of thoughts of what's happening with my body mm-hmm. well and in the instance of what everyone keeps going back to is the child that she was trying to wash in the river again we have to assume that she probably gave birth outside because that was where she was kept was outside mm-hmm. so she was using the tools that were available to her and again if she had decreased mental facilities she was doing what she what made sense to her her, and then to have that child pass away and have no idea why they passed mm-hmm. away, especially yes. if that was her first child, that's going to leave a mark on anybody. So like you're entirely right about the postpartum. As someone who has suffered from postpartum twice, like you, your brain tells you things that don't make sense. And it would, I'm imagining that if she was introduced to alcohol already at this point, she would have used it as a coping mechanism even more. So if she wasn't dependent on it prior to her first pregnancy, I could see how it would be something that she would turn to much more after the first Mm -hmm. one. Because, you know, mental health wasn't a thing back then. And if she was a slave, she wouldn't have been given mental health health care anyway. So you know, it's her whole story is unfortunate and sad. And I think it's 
it was extremely important and I think very, I'm trying to think of the word that I want to say, not necessarily necessary, but I think it was extremely important that the study was conducted in 2021 to kind of highlight that the previous study on her desecrated remains was woefully inaccurate to give her her humanity back and to, like you said, call out that she was completely mistreated and everything that she suffered was extremely unethical. It was important that this woman who is, even today, extremely unwell known that she was given that back after death. Yes. And I do, like, I'm a man, so I Mm -hmm. can't understand a lot of these things, but I understand as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And I want to scratch, you know, the surface level of paint off this stuff. That's why I bring up uh, postpartum depression. That's something I never saw anybody mention related to this mm-hmm. case, but that's logical to me. That's a thing mm-hmm. that people go through. And it's something that a lot of people go through that you don't hear about. It's yes. not well talked about. So it's a lot more common than you think. Another thing, she may not have been just a slave, but rather this nobleman who was keeping her might have been using her for prostitution. Mm-hmm. We don't have evidence of that, but there's that undertone then. Mm-hmm. There's so many things like at the surface level, this is very questionable. When you go deep into the research, it becomes much more questionable. But then there are these looming undertones that you think about, should I even go there or not? Like mm-hmm. nowhere is a stated postpartum depression, prostitution, all this stuff. But mm-hmm. you know, if this woman has been desecrated her whole life and after death, it's very possible that all of these things were in the mix as well. And I think this is a story of a woman who was, as we say, desecrated during her life. Nobody was ever nice to her. Like I told my friend Stephanie Quick uh, before recording, I'm recording an episode about Zana. And she just wrote me, be nice to Zana because nobody was nice to her during her life. Well, I'm thinking yeah. nobody has been nice to her even after her death because the, the desecration does not stop when somebody dies. But mm-hmm. in her case, it continues on and on and on. Mm-hmm. It, the desecration of her being, of her femininity, of the folkloric figure that is constructed of, of her of her name, and even literally the, the desecration of her remains even after Mm -hmm. she's dead, even like 150 years after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think talking about her and sharing her story and humanizing her is one of the only ways that we can show her kindness. Because as your friend said, like she she was not treated well in her life. And as so many people have been mistreated in similar fashions throughout history, like it's just it's important that people know about it in the hopes that we don't repeat the sins of the past. Yes. Well, I think that's a very powerful note to end on. I I don't want to muddy up anything else (laughs) that you said there. Thank you for doing this. I know this is a very heavy topic, especially Mm -hmm. because you're a woman literally talking with a male cryptid podcaster about this topic. So I I understand that you may have had thoughts in your head, like, what am I doing? No, I think it's, you know, it's good to have these types of conversations. And, you know, it's, it's good for people of both sexes to have these types of discussions, because it's, it's important to educate yourself. Oh, yes, I think it is very important, not just for women to amongst themselves humanize women, but rather talk with the opposite sex about this and share the the humanization of of the woman with everybody. Mm -hmm. Yep. So for the end, can you tell my listeners where they can find you and plug your stuff? (laughs) Sure. Happy to do so. Uh, Thank you again for having me on as a guest. This was really fun, even though it was a horrible topic. Um, Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> you can find Yield Crime wherever you're listening to this podcast. We're also on Twitter at Yield Crime Pod, and that's old with an E. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. We're also on TikTok at Yield Crime Podcast. And yeah, just come give us a listen and say hi. Yes. And I will be listening to more and more of your show now because I, I want to say here, like, I don't listen to true crime podcasts anymore because they're sensationalistic. They... Mm -hmm. They just don't do it right. But you 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 try to sift through the, this bullshit of, of <laughs> yellow journalism of, of confabulations and fantasy and mythologizing of, of these cases and bring back the humanity to them, even though we can't know the, the truth of what happened. But we can maybe use the history of all these cases to propel us in the future to not repeat the same things over and over again. Yeah, it's, it's important to go back and kind of see where we were and how far we still have to go. Yeah. And based on what we talked about today, <laughs> we have a, a, a lot farther to go. Uh, yes. People are still talking about this case as if it's an Almas Bigfoot case. It's always men, men yep. who, who want to sh shoot down Bigfoot because they're, you know, macho and alphas and whatnot. And of course, of course, this case of a wild woman, you're just going to be desecrating her, her legacy and her remains over and over again to prove your bullshit conspiracy theories. Yep. Okay. Thank you again. <laughs> Yeah. Very harsh subject. Maybe we collaborate again in the future. I, I love these topics. I love retrospectively anal uh, retros. Uh, how do you say it? <laughs> <laughs> retrospectively analyzing these old cases and uh, digging up what they tell us about ourselves today. I would recommend if you enjoyed talking about Zana, we did an episode about the Sasquatch Indian War against mm. the Choctaw Indians. And that was also a very fascinating episode that um, I think you would enjoy listening to. Well, I will link that episode in the episode description as well as your Zana episode for my listeners and for myself thank you no problem and until next time bye bye guys <laughs> <laughs>